Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn in them to John chapter 1, we are continuing to uh, work through the gospel according to John. And today we're going to look at John 1, 31, 35 through 51. John 1, 35 through 51. And let's just begin by reading this passage of scripture together. Remember, as we read, this is God's holy word. John 1, beginning in verse 35. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. What does it mean to become a Christian? Some think of that in terms of a choice to identify publicly with the Christian religion. Others think of it in terms of affirming a set of basic Christian beliefs. Still others think of it as going through a required process to join a particular Christian church. Some might go further to include participation in the activities of a specific local congregation. But I would suggest that while all of those things are involved with becoming a Christian, they do not get to the core of it. Instead, when you look at the New Testament, you see that becoming a Christian, that is becoming a disciple of Jesus, involves things that are more simple and more fundamental than those I listed above. One of the best places you can go to see this is to look at the inspired accounts in the New Testament of Jesus calling some of his first disciples. That is, men who would later become his 12 apostles. 
The most well-known of these accounts is found in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So for instance, Mark provides this account of how Jesus called his four most prominent disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. In Mark 1, 16 to 20, it says, Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now on its own, that account seems quite remarkable. It it reads as if Jesus walked up to four men, whom he had never met, fishing on the Sea of Galilee, and when he called them to follow him, they responded immediately as if drawn by some supernatural force. But actually, it's not quite that way. This was the moment that Jesus formerly, formally called them to become his disciples. But that didn't happen in a vacuum. Rather, John's account, the fourth gospel, tells us about prior interactions between Jesus and these men which explain why they were willing to leave their nets and their father and follow Jesus when he came calling. The story John tells is found in the text that we've come to this morning, John 1, 35-51. And as we look at the backstory in these verses, we will, of course, learn more about Jesus himself, but we will also learn what it means to become a disciple of Jesus, or as it came to be called later on, to become a Christian. So let's begin by just walking through this story together, and then we'll close by considering how it should impact our lives today. Now, John 1, 19 through 34, the verses leading up to our text, they were all about John the Baptist. So those verses focused on events which occurred on two consecutive days. On the first day, John talked with a delegation from Jerusalem who had sent to find out who he was. And then on the next day, John pointed to Jesus as he walked up and told those around who he was. Now, one of the things that John the Baptist had said about Jesus in that moment is in verse 29. There it says, He saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now our text begins in the next verse. And if you look at verses 35 and 36, we see that they begin by telling us that John repeated that statement the next day as well. So there we read, The next day, Again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Except notice, this time it says that John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. So John had disciples too, people who followed him in order to learn from him as their teacher. And the next verse, verse 37, tells us that two of John's disciples... Um, were 
standing with him and responded to what he said about Jesus on this occasion. So there we read, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Their teacher, John the Baptist, you remember, had been saying that he had come to prepare the way for someone greater who was coming after him. Perhaps he'd even made clear to his disciples that the one coming after him was the long-awaited Messiah. So his disciples were no doubt anticipating this when John pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. They may not have fully understand what John meant in describing Jesus that way, but it must have made them curious to find out more about this man. So they began to follow Jesus as he walked by. Now remember, Jesus hadn't begun his public ministry at this point. At least it wasn't in full force. He himself had been baptized by John the Baptist. He had presumably at this point experienced his 40-day wilderness temptations. But it seems that he had not yet begun traveling around, preaching and performing miracles. Uh, One of the reasons I say that is because the miracle of changing water into wine at that wedding in Cana, which is coming up in chapter 2, it says was, quote, the first of his signs. That event, which we're going to see in chapter 2, 1 through 11, seems to have marked the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. So at this point, Jesus probably wouldn't have been all that well known and probably wouldn't have had crowds of people following him around. So quite naturally then, these two disciples of John begin following him as he passes by, and Jesus clearly took note of it. Thus we read in verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? Now in one sense, this question is quite natural, isn't it? You'd probably say something similar to some people who started following you too, right? But of course, you can't help sensing something more significant about this question. As we'll see, Jesus, he's not surprised by any of these initial interactions with the men that he was going to call to be his disciples. Rather, it turns out that he already knew he was going to call each one because as he would make clear later on in the book, They were the ones the Father had given to him. So when he turned and saw these two men following him and said, what are you seeking? It seems to be more than a mere casual inquiry, doesn't it? It was a probing question, a question meant perhaps to help them see the significance of the moment and to encourage them to take it seriously. It's as if he was saying to them, this step you've just taken in physically following me right now is more significant than you know. If you truly want to know me, it's going to change your life forever. Are you ready? In response, they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, by calling Jesus Rabbi, these two disciples were recognizing him as a a teacher of divine truth and indicating that they had a desire to learn from him. By asking him, where are you staying? They're expressing a desire to 
go to the place where he's staying and to spend some time with him, talking with him, if he was willing. In verse 39, we see how Jesus responded. There he said, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. So Jesus invited these two men to the place where he was staying. They remained with him for the remainder of the day because it was already late afternoon when they had arrived. It says the tenth hour. That was probably four o'clock in the afternoon before sunset. They may have even stayed the night with Jesus at his house. In the next verses, the identity of one of these two disciples is suddenly revealed to us. There were told... One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. I imagine Andrew got that a lot. Oh, you're Simon Peter's brother. But out of all of his disciples, Jesus chose 12, whom he named apostles. And he spent more time with them, and he gave them special training because their ministry would lay the foundation of his church. And among the twelve, there were two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John, all friends, all fishermen together from Galilee, who formed a sort of inner circle within the twelve. They were always, for instance, the first four names listed uh, among the twelve whenever they are listed in the New Testament, and they garner more attention in the gospel narratives than anyone else. Here, in verses 40 through 41, we discover that Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, who will become one of the twelve, one of these four inner circle disciples of Jesus, was one of the two disciples of John the Baptist who followed Jesus to his house that fateful day, whose life would be changed there forever. Interesting, we're we're not told who the other disciple of Andrew was. Did you notice that? From the earliest days of the church, tradition has said that the other disciple was probably the author himself. John, the brother of James, who would become another one of these four inner circle disciples. Seems quite plausible that that is the case, but we can't confirm it. So after revealing in verse 40 that one of the two disciples who went and stayed with Jesus in his home was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, John went on to say, verse 41, that Andrew, quote, first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Now that is extremely striking. It means that whatever happened During that time that Andrew spent with Jesus on the previous evening, it was enough to convince him that Jesus was the Messiah, or Christ in Greek, who was promised in the Old Testament. Now, in order to appreciate the magnitude of what Andrew was saying here, we should take a moment, some time right now, to recall who the Messiah was, according to the Old Testament. You have to begin all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 where after the fall of Adam into sin, God announced the good news to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 that 
a descendant of Eve, would arise to crush the head of the serpent, the devil. That's the first mention of the Messiah. In Genesis 22, 17 through 18, we learn that he would also be a descendant of Abraham, who would bring blessing to the nations. And the Lord said to Abraham there, your offspring, singular, shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring, singular, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Then in Genesis 49, verse 10, it's revealed that the Messiah would also be a king from Judah's line who would rule over the nations. Listen to the amazing prophecy of Jacob over his fourth son, Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, Moses added that the Messiah would also be God's greatest prophet, to whom all must listen. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him, and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Later, we learn that the Messiah would not only be a king from Judah's line, but that he would be a descendant of David, and that his reign would be forever. God had promised David in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 14, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. David, who was a prophet himself, don't forget, knew the Messiah was coming and spoke of him in the loftiest terms, revealing to Israel that he would be both king over all, which goes all the way back to Genesis 49, but also a priest forever, prophet, priest, and king. In Psalm 110, verses 1 and 4, in verse 1, David says, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand and I, until I make your enemies your footstool. And then in verse 4, he adds, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the description of Messiah from here in the Old Testament becomes richer and fuller in the oracles of the prophets. So, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 9, famously, verses 6 and 7, we learn that somehow, somehow the Messiah would be a true man born into the world as a child, but somehow also truly God. There it says of him, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. A similar picture 
is painted of the Messiah in that great vision of Daniel during the exilic period recorded in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, where it says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the Lord actually revealed that the Messiah would be born in a little village, the village of Bethlehem, the birthplace of his ancestor David. He says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. But despite his humble origins, the prophet Micah went on to describe the greatness of his reign. Verse 4, he says, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Indeed, we read in Isaiah chapter 11 that so great will be the rule of the Messiah that when he rises, popping like a shoot out of the stump of Jesse, that the earth itself will be liberated from the effects of the curse. It says in Isaiah eleven six through 9 the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All of this, and much more, is what the Old Testament scriptures said about the Messiah who was coming. And what we see here in chapter 1, verse 41, is that after spending an evening with Jesus, Andrew has become convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. And he immediately went and told his brother Peter about it. He said, we have found the Messiah. It's an astounding claim. You can imagine that Peter must have found it somewhat difficult to believe at first. And that's why Andrew says what he says in verse 42, or does what he does. He brought him to Jesus to see for himself. While we're not told how Peter responded, he must have been somewhat taken aback by that first meeting. Because in verse 42, it says that when he arrived, Jesus looked at him and he said, You are Simon, son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. The Lord, you remember, had changed Abram's name to Abraham. He changed Jacob's name to Israel. And now Jesus changed Peter's name to Cephas or Cephas in the Greek or in Aramaic and Petros in the Greek, Peter in English. When the Lord had given Abram and Jacob new names, what did it indicate? It indicated that they would have a special purpose from God 
upon their lives. Well, the same is true here of Peter. And that purpose would be revealed later on when Jesus would say of Peter, you are Peter, which means rock in Greek. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. By changing Peter's name, the very moment he saw him approaching, Jesus showed he was already aware that Peter would be one of his disciples. Indeed, his most important disciple. And though it isn't mentioned here, we can presume that Peter wasn't with Jesus long before he came to share Andrew's conviction. Like he would say later on when Jesus asked him, Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of God. The next day, we're told in verse 43, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And we can assume that he spent the next day, that day, traveling up to Galilee. It was quite a jaunt. But once there, we're told he was on a mission. Quote, he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now to this point, we've seen people seeking Jesus. But here we see that Jesus seeks someone out. He understood that a Galilean man named Philip was one of those that his father had given to him to be a disciple. And he found him, and he called him. Philip would also become one of his 12 disciples that Jesus would later call apostles. He's always listed fifth, immediately after Peter, Andrew, James, and John, in every list of the 12 which is provided in the Gospels and Acts. But John alone out of all the gospel writers, tells us more about Philip. In fact, nothing is said about Philip other than his name in a list, except in this gospel. And this may be because of what the next verse tells us about him. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. In other words, Philip grew up in the same Galilean town, Bethsaida, as Andrew and Philip. Now Bethsaida, it was significantly sized, but it's still a small fishing community on the north side of the sea. So it seems quite possible that Philip would have been acquainted with Andrew and Peter if they all grew up there. And since Andrew and Peter were friends with James and John, John the author of this book, Philip may have known them as well. And this could be why John has more to say about Philip in his account of the gospel, than Matthew and Mark and Luke did in theirs. It's also interesting to note that unlike Simon and Andrew, which were good Hebrew names, Philip is a Greek name. In fact, one of the most famous Greeks of all time was Philip of Macedon. This means Philip was what you call a Hellenistic Jew. He was one of many Jews in Israel at the time, having been scattered throughout the Roman Empire, who had been heavily influenced by Greek language and culture. In fact, later on in the book, in chapter 12, we're going to see that some Greeks, for the first time, came and wanted to see Jesus, and were told they went to Philip. Because presumably, they could tell they shared with Philip their language and culture. Now, many in Israel would have looked down on Hellenistic Jews like Philip, viewing them as compromisers who are not truly faithful to their Jewish roots. But Jesus' choice of Philip demonstrates he had no such prejudice. Finally, we should consider what Jesus said to Philip. 
follow me. This is what it means to become a disciple of Jesus, isn't it? To become a Christian, as it were. It involves changing the entire course of your life to now begin following Jesus as your master with the intention of learning from him everything he has to teach you with the intention of seeking to put it into practice in your life. This is why Jesus told his apostles later in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, that when they made other disciples, they were to teach them to observe all that he had commanded. Since verse 44 tells us Philip was from Bethsaida in Galilee, we can assume that's where Jesus found him and called him. Afterwards, we're told, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. First, notice that after after only a short time, once again, Philip, like Andrew, had become convinced that Jesus was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. And having come to believe this about Jesus, he immediately wanted to tell someone else about him. Except, whereas Andrew wanted to tell his brother, Philip wanted to tell his close friend in Bethsaida named Nathaniel. Now, outside of this passage, the name Nathaniel is only mentioned one other time in the New Testament, and that's later on in the book, John 21, 2. But most scholars believe that Nathaniel is another one of Jesus' 12 apostles who appears in the lists, but other under a different name, Bartholomew. For one thing, Bartholomew and Philip are always listed side by side in the lists, which would make sense if they were friends from Bethsaida as described in this text. For another, Bartholomew is more of a title than a personal name. It's, it's what you call a patronym. It speaks to his father. It literally means something like son of Ptolemaeus, a very Greek name. So in all likelihood, John was simply calling Bartholomew, son of Ptolemaeus, by his more personal name, Nathaniel. Since, like Philip, they'd grown up together in Bethsaida. They, they related together in a more personal way. Now, when Nathaniel heard Philip's breathless claim that he and their mutual friends, Andrew and Peter, had found the Messiah, the one spoken of in Moses and the prophets, and that it was Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You could feel his heart kind of sink. He found that difficult to believe. In verse 46, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? After all, Nazareth was at that time a sleepy little town of 2,000 people in the southwestern part of Galilee, which apparently didn't have a very good reputation at that time. Plus, it had no pedigree in Israel's history, like Jerusalem or Hebron. It wasn't even mentioned in the Old Testament scriptures. It seems an unlikely place to Nathaniel that the Messiah could really come out of Nazareth. And his skepticism is understandable to a degree. But Philip knew that if Nathaniel could only meet Jesus, talk to him in person, he would understand. So he utters that now famous line, come and see. Nathaniel agreed. And we read what happened in verse 47. There it says, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him 
and said of him. It seems as if he said this to those around him and in the hearing of Nathanael as he approached. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Ah, that's another striking greeting, isn't it? It's kind of like the greeting that Jesus gave Peter. Though he'd never met Nathanael before, Jesus pronounced an assessment of his character. And what he said is full of this clever irony because there was another man, the original Israel, who was first named Jacob, which in Hebrew could mean cheater or deceiver. You remember his brother Esau's lament about him in Genesis 27:35. Is he not rightly named Jacob or one who cheats? For he has cheated me these two times. But now Jesus called Nathanael an Israelite indeed, a true Israelite, because in him there was no deceit. In other words, unlike Jacob, the one first named Israel, and unlike so many other Israelites in that day whom Jesus would indict as hypocrites because they performed their righteousness outwardly to be seen by men, while inwardly they were full of corruption. Nathaniel, though, was an honest and sincere Israelite. An Israelite, indeed. Jesus' words apparently stopped Nathaniel in his tracks because you can imagine he knew himself and this description rang true to him. He couldn't understand, though, how Jesus could possibly know this about him, having never met him before. And so we see he says in verse 48, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, we don't know exactly what Jesus was talking about here, do we? But the point is clear. He demonstrated supernatural knowledge of Nathanael before ever meeting him in person. And more specifically, he, he described Nathanael, again, by way of some supernatural knowledge He described Nathanael on some recent occasion when Nathanael had been sitting under a fig tree and you say, well, what was he doing? We don't know. Perhaps it was something that would demonstrate that he is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Perhaps he was praying like Jesus would tell people. When you pray, go into a secret place and pray and your Father in heaven sees. Perhaps it was a time of intense meditation and prayer. Perhaps he was praying about the Messiah, given the sad state of Israel at that time. Nathanael knew exactly what Jesus was referring to under the fig tree and how it confirmed Jesus' assessment that he was an honest and sincere man before God. So impressive, so much did this cut to Nathanael's heart that after this initial interaction, Nathanael was convinced that Philip had been right and he said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Both of those were titles for the Messiah whose coming was foretold in the Old Testament. But while this initial display of power was enough to convince Nathaniel that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus went on to assure Nathaniel in verse 50 that he hadn't seen anything yet. He says, it says, Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? 
Oh, you will see greater things than these. And of course, the rest of the book confirms that is true, isn't it? But Jesus followed that statement up with an even more remarkable statement in verse 51. There he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now Jesus had already alluded to the patriarch Jacob once in this conversation. And now he did so again. This time he referred to the dream that Jacob had had back in Genesis 28. And in that dream, we're told in verse 12, quote, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now the ladder in Jacob's dream, it represented a point of connection between heaven and earth. And it symbolized God's presence having come down with Jacob so that when Jacob awoke, he said this, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. And he named the place Bethel, which means house of God. Now here in our text, Jesus told Nathanael, do you see? That he would see something like what Jacob saw in that dream, except it would not be a ladder connecting heaven and earth, but Jesus himself. Notice what he said. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, when you hear that, you should say, yeah, that actually makes sense. Given what we've already read, for instance, about Jesus in the prologue to this book, there it said that Jesus was with God in the beginning and was God through whom all things were made. And it said that he became flesh and dwelt among us, that he was in the world, though the world was made through him. It said that though no one had seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, he has made him known. Jesus, in other words, was God come down to earth. His body was truly Bethel, the house of God. In fact, later on he would say, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. So when people observed Jesus, when they saw his character, when they observed his works, when they heard his words, they were seeing and hearing none other than the words and works and character of God. You remember what Jesus would say of himself in John 14.10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So then, do you see? Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of what the latter in Jacob's dream represented. A point of access between heaven and earth, between God and man. For he was the God-man. So that's what's in our passage. Now let's just consider how this should impact our lives today. I want to highlight just a few simple things concisely. 
This passage teaches us about Jesus, that we might know him, that we might believe in him. You know, it's difficult to miss the point that at its core, this text is all about Jesus. As you, as you watch four men who would be numbered among his 12 apostles encounter Jesus for the first time in our text, you learn from their mouths who Jesus is. He is the Lamb of God, verse 36. He is a rabbi or teacher, verse 28. He is the Messiah or Christ, verse 41. He is him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, verse 45. He is the son of God, the king of Israel, verse 49. He is the son of man, who like the ladder which Jacob saw in his dream, gives man access to God, linking heaven and earth. Now, these things have been revealed to you about Jesus in this text. So that you might know him. Like those first disciples. If you're already one of his disciples, these things are intended to deepen knowledge of him. By telling you things about him which perhaps you hadn't grasped yet. Or awakening a fresh appreciation in your heart for truths about him that you do already know. Treasure these things. Treasure this knowledge. Because Jesus is such an incredible person that everything in this world, Paul says, is rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing him. Second, this passage teaches us what it means to become a disciple of Jesus. Later, become a Christian. And what you see is that that cannot be reduced down to identifying with a religion or affirming certain doctrinal truths or going through a conversion process required to join a particular Christian communion. Now, those things aren't necessarily bad. Indeed, they all have a legitimate place, understood correctly, but you don't see any of that in this text. Rather, this text demonstrates That becoming a disciple of Jesus, it's simpler than that. It's more fundamental than that. It begins with hearing the truth about Jesus. Like those truths which I just articulated from this passage. And it involves coming to believe in him. That the things that you have heard about him are true. So that you confess them from your heart like you see happens with Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel. They hear about Jesus. They come to believe in him and then they tell others about him. Those who believe he is the Lamb of God, for instance, will trust him in his sacrifice to pay for their sins, to make them right with God rather than their own works. Those who call him rabbi or teacher will devote themselves to learning everything that he has to teach them and they'll reject whatever contradicts it. Those who believe that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, God's ultimate anointed king, will seek to obey whatever he commands you rather than following your own desires. And those who believe he is the God-man, the one who links heaven and earth will worship God through him alone and not some man-made religion. And all of this, we must say, involves 
a personal encounter with Jesus. You know, becoming a disciple involves coming to him, coming to him with an honest heart, a sincere heart, like Nathaniel, engaging with him personally, meeting him. Just as Andrew and Peter and Nathaniel came to meet him in these verses. Now, of course, Jesus isn't on the earth in the same way today as he was then, isn't that true? He's already ascended bodily into heaven. But he is present. Do you remember just before he left, he told his disciples, And behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. He's present with us by his Holy Spirit. He has revealed himself to us in scripture so that we can still know him. We can hear from him. So we can truly engage with him personally in prayer. And he will reveal himself to us personally by his spirit when we read the scriptures where he speaks to us. You know, perhaps you've not met Jesus yet. Perhaps even... You are skeptical that what I've been saying about him from these, this text is true. Or maybe you always thought that you were a disciple of Jesus, but now you're starting to wonder whether that's really true. I would exhort you, as Jesus exhorted Andrew in verse 39, as Philip exhorted Nathaniel, verse 46, come and see. In other words, don't write Jesus off until you have sincerely sought him out. So for instance, pick up your Bible. Read what it says about him. It's probably not what you thought. Starting in the four Gospels, which speak most directly about him. And be ready to believe in him as he makes himself known to you. But understand this. Like each of these four men, Meeting Jesus and coming to believe in him will change your life. You have to hear Jesus asking you the question, what are you seeking? Your life will never be the same. There are things you will have to leave behind to follow Jesus. But if he is who the scripture says he is, well then, it's worth any cost to be counted among his disciples. Third, and finally, this passage teaches disciples to bring others to Jesus. You know, when a person meets Jesus and they, and they come to believe in him, it will be natural to want to tell others about him too and bring them to meet Jesus too, to lead them to Jesus as it were. You see this in this passage. After Andrew met Jesus and he came to believe in him, he went and told his brother Peter, we have found the Messiah and brought him to Jesus. After Philip met Jesus and came to believe in him, he found his friend Nathanael and said, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. And he invited him, come and see. And the same should be true of every Christian. If we've met Jesus, if we've come to believe in him, he should be so amazing to us that we want to go and tell our family and tell our friends about him and others as we have opportunity and invite them, come and see, meet him for yourself. Some will even go to foreign lands, to places who have never heard about him, to people to tell them, come and see. We will tell them eagerly 
We have found the Christ promised in the Old Testament. The son of God who is the anointed king over all. The son of man who gives us access to God in heaven. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we'll invite them to come to him to see for themselves that they might believe in him too. Take the scriptures. Invite them to read. Explain to them what the scriptures teach about Jesus. Invite them to read the scriptures for themselves on their own. Urge them to pray to Jesus sincerely from their heart that they might have wisdom and knowledge of him to pray for forgiveness of their sins and peace with God. To pray that he would liberate them from the corruptions of their flesh and strengthen them to, dis- to obey God. And as we've seen in this text, Jesus is willing to receive those who come to him with an honest and sincere heart, who aren't just putting on a show for others, who aren't just interested in themselves and satisfying their own demands, desires, but honestly want to know who Jesus is. Well, in conclusion, this morning we've read John's account of how Jesus began calling four of the twelve inner circle disciples to himself, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, at least two of the inner circle. And it's given us a window, not only into who Jesus is, but what it means to become his disciple. May it rejoice our hearts as Christians to know that each one of us has our own story to tell of how Jesus sought us out and called us to follow him too. And may it encourage us to call those who have not done so to come to Jesus, to see for themselves, to follow him as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this text, this inspired record of the calling of those early disciples. Lord, as we think of how you you came to seek and save the lost, how you invite sinners to come to you for forgiveness, to follow you as, their, as our master and king. As we think of how you, the glorious Messiah, would associate yourself with us, ordinary men and women, sinners, weak and frail. We thank you that you are so willing, so gracious to take us, to be your blood-bought people, to make us yours forever, to unite yourself to us in the bonds of the new covenant. We pray that you would amaze our souls afresh with who you are, that you'd fill us with a deep desire for others to know you as well. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.